1: There we go. There we are. Good afternoon. Monday, of course, means the gathering of the Zoomer squad, and we've got several items up for discussion. There's a private member's bill at Queen's Park to keep elderly couples together in long-term care. Canadian Snowbirds Association and its legal challenge against the Ford government's move to scrap out of country health insurance coverage, as well as the passing of the Ford family matriarch diane ford we had that uh, on the news throughout the morning here on zoomer radio but before hearing from the squad we'd like to we'd like for you to be part of the conversation as well so uh, the usual numbers coming your way and for you to dial in order to take part 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740 and now a welcome And a Happy New Year to Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Sorry, gentlemen, ladies first. (laughs) David Kravitz, Vice President, Zoomer Media. And in the corner there, Peter Muggeridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Peter, welcome. Thanks, Bob. Happy New Year again to all of you. And let's start with the news of the death of Diane Ford, mother of Premier Doug, late Toronto Mayor Rob. She was 85, and Mayor John Tory, who will be on the show in the second half of Fight Back, among the many, offering condolences. She was such a strong uh, woman and also uh, a woman that had a terrific uh, sense of humour, but she really was uh, the matriarch of that family. And, uh, you know, because I knew her late husband, and of course I've known the whole family for some time now, and uh, she was there, you know, during a lot of turbulent times. I mean, when you're in public life, that's just the nature of the beast, is that you're going to be involved in some degree of turbulence and and things that go on uh, that don't uh, affect uh, other families, not in public life. But uh, she'll, she'll be missed by the family, of course, but she'll be missed by the community. She was very active, and she'll be missed uh, by uh, people in the political process who knew her very well as the matriarch of a family of considerable uh, you know, accomplishment in public life, including our colleague, uh, Councillor Michael Ford, who um, had a very, very special relationship with his grandmother. And, David, starting with you, I think you would agree that she probably had a lot of influence on uh, both uh, Rob and... And uh, Doug, in terms of their careers,
2: I think that's true. And I think the one aspect, uh, of course, I didn't know her, but the one aspect of her influence that you can see in her bio is that community uh, involvement. Mm -hmm. Um, She hosted a lot of events. She was very active in the community. She was uh, connected locally in a very strong way, and I think if you look at Rob Ford and Doug Ford, and you look at where their bedrock of voters comes from, they were they were both known as good, you know, constituency people. If the pothole needed fixing, if the organization needed sponsoring, if you needed to sell tickets to the fund drive, um, they really were gra- and are, I think, grassroots level. People, and I think that you can trace that uh, to her influence directly.
1: And how many times, Marissa, when Rob was mayor, and uh, even when Doug, before becoming premier, was at City Hall, they would always give us a call. You have a problem, mm-hmm. we'll deal with it. Give us a call, as mm-hmm. opposed to going through, you know, through, through us, a middle person. Yeah,
3: and that's what they were known for, um, and and why they were elected. Frankly, uh, she really—you uh, can't underestimate the influence and power of a matriarch of a family. She really was a rock um, for the Ford family, and she lived a long and very impressive life. She went came through a number of scandals and tragedy, but she remained strong for that family. And I think it's a real loss for. Um, Um, obviously the premier and and the city councillor and and for the rest of the Ford family. I think she'll be missed, and my condolences go out to them.
1: And I think, Peter, how many times did we hear either of the Ford brothers when they would talk about the people, doing things for the people? And I think that's uh, reinforced, uh, that's something that came down from from Diane Ford. Yeah, that's a quality that comes
4: from the mother, I think. You you can tell just by... Just by looking at her she actually looks a lot like them too yeah <laughs> oh, and yeah. uh they inherited that they inherited her sensibility and um you know quietly she she sort of um you know we keep hearing the word matriarch but she presided over in a, like one of, one of the most successful ontario political clans you know her mm-hmm. her husband was was an mpp under harris Doug is premier, Rob was mayor, and and Michael was uh, is. Uh Counselors. Uh, counselor it's it's, it's well. an
1: amazing uh, mm-hmm. clan, you know? I mean, when you think of Ford Nation, you think of Etobicoke North, and maybe there's somebody listening out there now who resides in Etobicoke North or is a member of Ford Nation that might wish to pass along some some personal stories. They might have uh, uh, that might have involved you uh, in any dealings with the Ford family. 416 or toll-free 866 740. Uh, keeping our provincial theme, if you will, I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, the Fords. We're talking about someone who's the premier now. There's the Till Death Do Us Part Act. That's a private members bill that's uh, being pushed by a New Democrat MPP aimed at keeping elderly couples together in long-term care. Uh, Marissa, I know you want to weigh in on this one.
3: Sure. So um this is a situation that many couples in in Canada face when one spouse qualifies for long-term care and the other doesn't. They're often separated. Or when both partners require care and they both qualify, but they're put in separate homes. I know that we've heard from our own CART members who've been together for some 60 or 70 years and are told at a time in their life when they ought to stay together, that they need to be separated into different homes. And there's nothing that we can do about it, but to shine light on this situation. And it is a bit of a crisis. Now, I think that it speaks to a larger issue in our healthcare system, which is that it was not built, it was not equipped to deal with the needs of an aging population. And this is just one example of that. Here we are.
1: And you know, there's the whole, and Marissa, you pointed out how there's like 35,000 in this province who are on a wait list. And David, uh, that the, the problem is you've got people that want to be together, but maybe not both of them are ill. Well, that's so, right. And everyone's vying for a select number of beds, and you can't accommodate everyone. Well,
2: that's the whole problem here, is that the sentiment behind the bill, the objectives of the bill, are impossible to object to. It, you, total support, why shouldn't you have the right? But is that right actionable? Can it be translated into policy and can it be delivered and the, what marissa highlighted and it's i think just the start of a uh, uh, long-term trend we're going to have this kind of conversation what is long-term care who gets the right to it who stands in line first what if the price of giving a bed to an able-bodied sentient spouse of somebody in long-term care is to take that bed away from somebody on a waiting list who needs that bed themselves So the policy details here and some of the contradictions as we try to execute on this very commendable sentiment, that's where it's going to come. And I think there's a host of other topics related to long-term care that we are just beginning to wrap our heads around. I commend the intent of the bill. But really, I think it's largely symbolic until you figure out how you can deliver on it. Okay,
3: but let me just interject here and then I'm sure you want to jump in too, Peter. But first you have to consider, I mean, we're not just talking about two healthy couples that are being separated. 90% of people... In long-term care or going into long-term care, have some form of cognitive impairment. A majority of them have dementia. So we're talking—we're talking about couples that are ill. And and when someone has dementia, how critically important it is to maintain some sort of familiarity is so critical to their quality of life. I remember with my own grandmother who had dementia. She was long divorced, but the my mother was the last person she forgot, and she—that was so integral. And in, in terms of ensuring that she was calm, maintaining that that positive quality of life in long-term care when she was there, because that was the only person she recognized. Every caregiver that came into her room, even though they'd been caring for her for days, she would forget. For months, she forgot. She didn't know who they were. And so, at the time of life when you are, you know, entering into the state where your cognitive impairment is is declining. Or has declined. How critically important it is to keep, particularly for example, you know, if someone becomes agitated, having a family member there to keep them calm is so important. Yeah, familiarity. It's so important.
4: But the, but the question is, like, um, like, like these these long term care homes aren't equipped to, to house healthy people, you know, and nor should a, a healthy person. Like, how, how are they going to survive living living with people who are? You know, receiving food by like being spoon-fed and like it, it, they they're just it, they would be as out of their depth as as uh, you know a sick person is in, in society. So like they they have to change the whole idea of of the long-term care home and and sort of c- create a new thing where you know healthy people can mix with people who aren't so healthy, live in the same area, live in the same room. But under under the current homes, it's not going to work. It, it, like a healthy person cannot live in a long-term care
1: home it just wouldn't work now are we here the zoomer squad with with david marissa and peter describing a situation that involves you or a loved one want to hear from you 416 740 toll free 1-866-744-740 and marissa like ha. <laughs> Uh, David, you mentioned it's symbolic, and it is. You can't speak out against this. It it makes no sense whatsoever because who isn't affected doesn't know somebody who's in a long-term care home or about to go into one. Marissa
2: touched on a very important distinction is that the presence of the spouse to someone with dementia or cognitive impairment can be seen as an important part of their medical needs. As opposed to, I don't mean in opposition to, but mm-hmm. distinct from the rights of the visiting spouse. So, on the one thing, the, if you enshrine in law, I have the right to be there till death do us part. That's for me. I may not need it medically. The spouse may need it medically. But what if the spouse doesn't need it medically? So, you're creating a sentiment that is admirable. That with you're bypassing all the deliverables. You're bypassing all the tough questions of how you actually execute this. And I think that might be coming next. I'm not criticizing the Member of Parliament, but it's got to be dealt with.
3: Okay, but the solution requires more than simply creating new long-term care beds. We need to redistribute how our healthcare dollars are spent. Mm. We need to invest in things like pharmacare and critical vaccines so people don't end up in the hospital so debilitated they have to go into long-term care. We need to invest in things like home care. We know that a majority of our members don't want to end up in long-term care if they don't have to be there. And we also know, according to a new CHI study, 22% of people in residential care, that includes long-term care, care, don't have to be in long-term care. So we need to... 22%?
4: Don't
3: have to be there, yes. that Their needs could be met in another setting, including at home. So we need to invest in different ways to be able to care for the needs of an aging population. And that means more than just putting in new long-term care beds.
1: That's like one in five, two in Mm 10 that shouldn't be there. And you think of all those people that could use those beds and... No, but then, no but chance to Marissa right makes now.
2: A critical point because that speaks to the siloing of the system. Because mm. what happens is, okay, I'm in charge of long term care. Oh my gosh, I need more beds. We don't have enough beds. Get more beds. Find the money to get more beds. But nobody's taking a step. And this this could have been anticipated. I mean, Statistics Canada gives population projections by age to the end of this century. We know what's coming. We know that the current mechanisms are inadequate. I hope somewhere. I am not saying it isn't happening, but I hope it is happening in the men, in the health bureaucracies they're looking at. Do we even need to redefine this whole, topic what is what types yes. of facilities do we need mm-hmm.
3: and at the same time the need for long term care is is rising with approximately 500,000 Canadians suffering from dementia it's a very significant cause of disability and if you do have dementia it's likely you need the required the, the amount of care that is offered by long term care so we need to flip long-term care on its head we need to reimagine how we deliver care in these types of settings there are different types of emotional based models like the butterfly model that really uh, 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 you know is, is all about meeting the emotional needs of a patient not just their specific clinical needs and that would include providing rooms that are that are you know apartments for two if you will
1: And and Peter, don't you think, here's Marissa making very good points, and obviously in your dealings with provincial government, you have a little bit of an insight, so you're kind of our insider into uh, how they view things as far as health care goes, and especially for the aging population. Even if they were to pass this into law, and this becomes law, until something were to be done with this, given all these other priorities that we have to deal with in healthcare, Peter. Don't you think this is like a? Uh, it would be like an ocean liner trying to make a right-hand turn at the last minute, saying, "Oh, I've got to go there." It'll be years before anything comes years. of this, and,
4: and it's going to take a complete redevelopment of uh, of what we know as a long-term care home. I mean, the the uh, the the minister for long-term care homes, um, long-term right. care, uh, Fullerton, has said she envisions this idea of a of a campus rather than a home where. You know, healthy people, or people with with sort of, um, you know, you know, people with serious needs are, are in the long are in the long term care part, and their spouses who may not have so, such serious needs can live either with them or in another part, and then as their needs increase, they can sort of flow into the system. But it's it's going to need a complete rethink, bump, And uh, I don't know where that starts. You know, like it, I guess it starts at the top, but but. What, whether we have the the political will to do it is, is you know. And it needs to rethink question. from the yeah.
2: point of view of the, seeing the patient as the real constituent, because we know that the vast right. majority, Marissa's right, the vast majority of people, uh, let's say 50 plus, never mind 80 plus, <clears throat> do not want to uh, live in an institution. Okay, I want to delay that as long as possible. Uh, So that's what they want. So is it a question of the system saying, well, too bad what you want. We're running it this way. And uh,
1: well, here's how it's been done. You know,
2: we'll we'll have a bed for you in five years. Or do you say we have to respond to these needs. And to Marissa's point about people living at home, there's billions of dollars of private equity flowing into high-tech solutions to independent living at home. Where does that factor in? It's way more beneficial and way cheaper than building the conventional long-term care home. So somewhere in the planning, there's got to be, both of my colleagues completely correct here, a reimagining, a re-envisioning of the entire thing. Then a Law such as this has a shot at being implemented. Right now, you're dropping a pebble into an ocean, and the ocean's currents are already well are established. affecting the ripple, <laughs> and, and they're you can't already even well see it. established. Those tides are already yeah. rolling, and you're yeah. trying to, you know, and it's it's great, it's great. The effort is great, but um, I think you
4: know, it's it's as much as they can do to place a person in a room. Now, you know, they can't even do that. Like, how are they going to place? Um, a person Absolutely. plus his
2: spouse or her spouse. Uh, in you know.
3: 2018, there was a regulation that was passed that required all long-term care homes to have at least two beds for spouses. Not all long-term care homes are actually delivering on this, and we know that it's not nearly enough to meet the demand. So again, to both Peter and David's point, um, while CARP wholeheartedly supports the idea that spouses should be kept together. It's a great initiative. It's important. We are optimistically cautious that it's not just another regulation with no teeth, that this is something that the government will actually be able to enforce and deliver on because it is so important.
1: And, you know, we've just had the Trudeau government reelected. So until they get their feet wet and business starts picking up again in terms of uh, action on health care, I guess the province, provinces, territories have to kind of await and see how much money might be coming their way before they know how to maybe divvy up some of those dollars to address the concerns we've been talking about here and that's only one area health care and it's a big area uh, till they really can to, till they can act and before the province can act and politicians and then again it gets back to that old uh, scenario of until that ocean liner, turns around it's gonna be quite some time, unfortunately.
2: But we're already spending uh near the top of OECD countries on health care and getting near the bottom in terms of results. Ontario is gonna drop sixty three point five billion on health care this year. And I'm not convinced that uh the only thing standing in the way of making it better is more money.
1: No. Doesn't mean that you're gonna make the right decision.
2: Yeah, there could decisions. be a little more creativity with mm-hmm. the, with the funds they do have. There
3: has to be. And and that's because the health mm-hmm. system was created, it was built over 50 years ago, the average age was much lower than it was to, than it is today. The life expectancy is much lower than it is today. And it is primarily focused on meeting the needs of people in hospital or 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 physician visits and it's not built or designed to meet the needs of a population that's 80, aging well into their 80s and 90s with with chronic and complex conditions.
1: And let's still, with our provincial theme, you've got the Canadian Snowbird Association legally challenging the Ford government's move to uh, scrap out-of-country health insurance coverage, which took effect on New Year's Day. Happy New Year's. <laughs> uh, so what about that, David? David.
2: Well, I think this is an example of a small item affecting a huge number of people because we have to separate how much money is actually being lost. Nine million. They paid 88,000 claims at an average of $127. I'm getting this from the Auditor General for a total of um, um, something about $9 million or $10 million. So yeah. it's a, a tenth, less than a tenth of 1% of the budget, of the health budget. But... 4 million Ontarians and two million, two point five million 2.5 million of them are Zoomers, vacationed outside of Canada last year. They're going to have to pay more for their insurance. So to save those 88,000 claims, you're going to affect a vast number of people. And that's why there's a problem. Marissa.
3: So David's right. Um, and maybe I can just sort of expound upon why they'll have to. So. We've had conversations with various insurance providers that provide snowbird insurance, travel insurance, and it is true that what you will likely see as a result of this move is that your premiums will go up. So previously, the province used to cover $400 a day for inpatient uh, services in a hospital and $50 for maybe out-of-patient. I think those were the the dollar figures, right? Those are the right numbers. So that's a drop in the bucket. If you're traveling to the U.S. and you break your knee, you're going to need more than $400. So on the one hand, this program maybe gave people false security because they thought it was more robust than it actually Mm -hmm. is. On the other, many people weren't even aware of it. So we saw, as David mentioned, the claims were quite small compared to the number of people that actually traveled traveled last year. What it does do, though, is now there's not going to be those 88,000 claims that first go through OHIP, which means that the risk pool for these insurance providers goes up because all of the insurance claims will first be going through them. And as a result, you will see premiums go up. And speaking to travel insurance providers, they have they have admitted that the premiums will go up as a result. Now, I was speaking to someone earlier today that said to me, oh, well, Marissa, if you have enough money to travel, then surely you can afford the premium. But I would just caution people with that attitude. A lot of people don't travel for luxury vacations. A lot of people travel because they have to, for reasons outside of their control, because of a funeral, because of a family member who's sick, and they require this travel insurance. We would never encourage people to travel to the United States without proper insurance, but they need to be aware that the costs may go up as a result and they, do, need, they must 7. do their research.
4: That's high as 7.5%, the snowbirds uh, say. Yeah. a high as 7.5% rise.
3: Which is significant.
1: And it's not as if when people do travel that you're looking at burning money. You're looking at trying to save money. How many people try to get last minute deals? So yeah, you want to travel. Yes, you want to go somewhere to, to get away for a while and, and reset. But you're always looking at saving money. You're not looking exactly. at like that one person that you spoke to seemed to suggest that, well, if you got money for that, then, you know, it's like you can throw it around like confetti.
3: And we have heard from our members anecdotally that they've been impacted by this, that they weren't able to travel to the same extent or, or maybe chose to stay home as a result of the increased costs associated with it. So we do know that it will, ha- that it is already having an impact.
1: Uh, Peter, I put this to you. As we know, the uh, Ford government has made moves and then done A little bit of backtracking partially, backtracking whatever education comes to mind when when I say Mm -hmm. that. Can they possibly do a bit of a two steps forward, one step back on this, do you think, or no?
4: Well, you know, they might have to because um, it's right in the Canada Health Act under the portability section. It says, and I'm quoting from the um, Canadian Snowbird press release, this is from the Canada Health Act. Services are provided out of Canada payment is made on this basis of the amount that would have been paid by the province for similar services. So it's right in the act. And uh, I don't know how they're going to beat the uh, courts on that. You know,
3: Yeah, uh, maybe. I, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but it, it sounds like to Peter's point, it's a violation of the spirit of the Canada Health Act. I don't. I don't think the Ontario government is is changing its course on this. I think they're moving forward. I don't anticipate it happening but the, at the all. The other
2: thing too,
4: it's only nine million. Like, why, like, why are they? Why are they sort of? Uh you know, risking the the, yeah. the negative feedback for nine million—it it yeah. seems like a strange move. you are right?
2: affecting so many people by this, yeah. and even you know, let's talk about put the negative in perspective, Bob. I mean, the fact—let's say you can't afford it. Let's say that's true. Okay, last year, for example, uh, over a million Ontario Zoomers traveled outside of Canada on a vacation for two weeks or more. So now those people are going to just have to pay more, and they will. I think a lot of them will pay more. that's mm-hmm. so, you know, my trip just increased by X. percent it doesn't yeah. make it a good thing, no. but I don't understand the trade-off that the government to save eighty eight thousand claims and nine million like you don't an invisible sum of money in the context of a sixty three billion dollar health care budget should alienate that many people. Somebody didn't do. Maybe they should use the Auditor General to do some political accounting and not just (laughs) monetary accounting.
3: And next to no consultation. I mean, they consulted for maybe five days or something with the public, and I'm not even sure CARP had an opportunity to weigh in. So they really didn't consider all of the implications this would have on snowbirds, that's for sure.
1: That's why there's a part of me— that still thinks maybe somehow, some way they're gonna back up. Well they delayed yeah, it
3: already, but it's
1: I know, but there's I think just you might
2: be right. I think if they if anybody sat down and did a cost benefit trade off here, you're gonna save yourself nine million dollars and you're gonna take f- four million travelers, of whom, you know, two plus million Ontarians, strictly Ontarians, stay for three weeks or more, two weeks or more. Uh, and they're they're going to be they're going to see their costs go up by five six seven percent. Uh, nice win. <laughs> I mean, who's who's thinking about this? There, I don't get it.
1: The Zoomer Squad Mondays here on Fight Back. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP. David Kravitz, Vice President Zoomer Media, and Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor Zoomer Magazine. Again, thank you all, and Happy New Year to you all.